Welcome back to the SCBWI podcast, our series of long-form interviews with some of the most influential and interesting people working in children's books. My name's Theo Baker, and on today's show, I talked with the award-winning author Catherine Marsh about her incredible upper-middle-grade new novel, The Lost Year, a survival story of the Ukraine famine. Her book weaves history and present-day events into a fascinating and touching personal story about those pockets of history that are too often overlooked and how that history echoes forth through the generations. I was particularly interested to talk with Catherine about this book as I'd abandoned a somewhat similar project, finding it too difficult for me to find the light in this subject matter and to research information that the powers that be have conspired to bury. Catherine is a former political journalist, and I found her insight into her process and approach to this difficult material invaluable and enlightened. This is a wonderful book, and I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. We're really pleased to welcome Catherine Marsh here today, whose wonderful new book, The Lost Year, is about so much of what's happening now and in the past, and it keeps repeating over and over again. And I was wondering, Catherine, just to kind of break the ice, if you could just tell me a little bit about where you come from and how you started writing. Sure. So I uh, grew up in Yonkers, New York. I was actually born in the Hudson River Valley area, but when I was five years old, we moved to my grandmother's house in Yonkers. And my grandmother was Ukrainian. She was born in Ukraine and she came here as an immigrant in 1928, which was a very hard time to come. This was after 1924, there was a law passed to kind of reduce the number of immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe and also limit them completely from Asia. And so my grandmother actually went to Mexico and then she went to Cuba and finally she got in through a paper marriage that was arranged by her older brother who was here. But she left behind two sisters and um, a younger brother. And she spent the next 70 years of her life keeping in touch with them through letters, because that was basically the only way to do so. So anyway, I moved in when I was five years old, and I'm an only child. And so she spent a lot of time telling me stories about her childhood in Ukraine. And she clearly really missed it. And, you know, just really longed for that world. And so it became mine in a lot of ways through all those stories she used to tell me. So that was one reason this subject interested me. And the other one was that basically, you know, I had been hearing about this famine, the Holodomor, you know, just from the my grandmother and her world. And the estimates are that about 4 million people died, although those numbers vary depending on, you know, who you talk to. But the bottom line is millions of Ukrainians died in what was a preventable famine. And yet nobody seemed to know about this except for sort of my family or other families that had some sort of Ukrainian heritage. So I knew I wanted to do something about that and write something about that. Perhaps if you could tell us how you kind of bridged into children's books. Yeah, I was a journalist. That was my, and still is my career. I go back and forth between journalism and and children's book writing. But I basically, you know, I ended up being a political journalist here in DC, an editor. And I felt like I missed the creative part of writing for me. And so I really was drawn to writing for young people, partly because when I was 10, my parents separated. And when I was 14, I had a really hard year. And it just, you know, maybe it sort of arrested my development in some ways, but it really stuck me in that kind of moment of 
when you go from innocence to experience. And I love writing middle grade because for me, it's that time where kids are just starting to kind of realize that there's a whole world out there and that, you know, their parents may be flawed in certain ways and they're starting to figure out who they are in that world. And those questions and that sort of emotional intensity of that time really interested me. So I started to try to write on the side as I was editing and and I would do an hour a morning because that's all the time I had. I would go to work and, and just do in my hour a day. But eventually I was able to write a book that way. First one, never sold, is in a drawer. And I always like to tell people that because I think that is more of the rule than the exception that you you know have to try this a few times. And then the second book I wrote, I was able to sell. And that sort of started my career. It was called The Night Tourist. Thank you for that. There's so much I want to talk to you about. So we're living in this kind of age of misinformation. And it, that's something that's kind of permeates every page of your book is who do we trust? And I really do feel like this age of misinformation kind of, I can trace it back to like 2014 when Russia was sort of instigating in Ukraine and all of this Russian disinformation started coming out. And I feel like it's engulfed our political reality. With that in mind, just tell me about the time that you began this book. What drew you to this material? and to interlace it with the pandemic, which was just a, a, is a giant web of who to trust. Yes, indeed. So I started the book before the February 2022 invasion by Russia. But as you mentioned and wisely pointed out, there have been, you know, Russian, Russia and Ukraine in some ways have been in a war since 2014, you know, when Russia went into Crimea. So I was drawn to this, though, as a journalist, largely, because that's my background. And I am interested in this question of disinformation. And I was thinking about what was going on in Russia and Ukraine, but I was also thinking about what was going on in this country and the amount of disinformation that was being spread, not only during the pandemic, but, you know, also just it was becoming more and more part of our daily life. You know, we can get into the politics of it. I'd be be happy to do so, but I don't want to get political. But what I do want to say is that disinformation and misinformation became so like mainstream in all of our lives. We were all grappling with it in some way or another. And so I was drawn to this period of the early 1930s um, in the Soviet Union because I felt that there were certain dangers that I wanted to have people think about, not only in regards to Russia and Ukraine, which I think there's a lot there, and we can talk about that in terms of those historical parallels. But I wasn't, I was writing that at a time where that wasn't in the as much in the forefront as it is today. But I was also thinking about the kind of us versus them thinking that we've kind of gotten into as a culture and a country and, you know, how that can be very dangerous, especially in the hands of somebody like a Stalin or a Putin (laughs) who uses disinformation to kind of villainize certain people and to create a very kind of dangerous society. And so I felt that there were these parallels that I wanted to kind of write about with what happened in the early 1930s and what was happening, you know, today. Yeah, there's definitely a divide and conquer thing. I want to get right into your book because one thing I thought that was so smart about how you began it 
and you were just right in it right away. You start with this kind of Zelda thing happening. And even as a 43-year-old man, I revert right back to 12. And I'm like, I'm in this. I Because I, I know that struggle. And then as soon as we start to get in, the language of that second chapter with, with Mila is, feels so modern. And it's a really lovely parallel. We're so easily dropped into the emotional life of her story because I feel like you've set up this thing with a video game and then the language kind of mirrors that. Oftentimes when we think of like reading from old books, you know, there's that old fashioned language. And no, 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 these are just people, just kids, just like you and me. So just tell me about like how, even on a craft level, how you approached getting us into that world and invested like right away. There's sort of an interesting origin story with this book, both in terms of it being written before the current invasion, the 2022 invasion, and what I was also thinking about at the time and how that sort of evolved. So your question basically is how I got into the characters. And I actually started the book with the character of Mila when I started to write the draft. And for those, you know, just to inform everyone who Mila is, she is the uh, daughter of a Ukrainian Communist Party official. And she has basically completely drunk the Kool-Aid. Her father is, you know, definitely a loyal communist. And she has had a very privileged life as a daughter of an elite. And so I heard her voice, like I, I I sort of had a sense of her voice and she is the character who more than any other has to go from innocence to experience. And I was very interested in that process of how, how you change, especially when your opinion is dangerous or, you know, when you realize that your worldview is actually kind of toxic, because I think that's something we're all like, we all grapple with, right? And we all know people in our lives who, you know, we feel like, can't get out of that sort of toxic mindset. And so I was very interested in sort of creating this character who had to kind of face up to a different reality than the one that she had imagined for a long time. So I had her at being one of three cousins. And so the book is partly the story of these three cousins, but it's also framed by the story of Matthew, who you mentioned, who is the Legends of Zelda, 13-year-old boy, Legends of Zelda fan. And Matthew's came later for me. He was not, even though his chapter starts the book, I kind of discovered him a few months in. And what happened is I started writing the book and then the pandemic happened. I was living that reality. My children were living that reality. I have a teen and a tween, so they were... I was watching them uh, go through this, and I realized how there is so much trauma during the pandemic, both in terms of, you know, a million people dying and all the families of those people suffering. But even for people who didn't lose anyone, there is incredible disruption and distress. And for kids, it was kind of a, you know, this has never happened in my lifetime event, even for many adults. But I think for kids, it was just so traumatic in a lot of ways. So I felt like one of the things I wanted to do in connecting these two pieces of history was not only to show the sort of dangers of disinformation and us versus them thinking, but also to show how we get through trauma, how we kind of can use stories to both record it accurately in oral history, and we can also use stories to create the types of connections that help us emotionally 
see ourselves as not exceptional, but as part of human experience. And I think it's very dangerous too, when people see something as incredibly exceptional, like the pandemic. It was exceptional in our lifetime, but there have been lots of periods of incredible darkness and trauma in human experience. And so I wanted to sort of give kids a way to see that people have gotten through that before. Even though these are apples and oranges, I don't want to say they're the same thing, the pandemic and the Ukrainian famine, but they're both incredibly frightening and dark periods that people have had to learn to remember accurately and to, you know, process emotionally. As we mentioned before we started talking, I had some experience writing about this uh, um an episode in history that's um, lateral to what you described, uh, the Russian wild kids, the Soviet wild kids. And what I found what was impossible was to find good primary source information because this was happened in the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union was a master of propaganda and a master of hiding history that they found didn't support their worldview. Tell me about the research process and getting to that human element of lived experience through something so big that even not many people know about? Yeah, that's a great question because it is difficult and it's become more difficult to to do research in the, in, in I was about to say the Soviet Union, but Russia, you know, in, in the last year or so. But I was kind of lucky in that there has been an effort, particularly since the fall of the Soviet Union, to to interview people and to to acquire that history. Some people were interviewed um, in the 1980s. There is a U.S. congressional committee that looked into the Ukrainian famine and they found a lot of survivors and they interviewed them. And so some of those oral histories were very helpful to me. There are academics who since 1992 have been sort of more free to kind of delve into this. And I think particularly in Ukraine, as because this history informed so much, it was something that so many people suffered through and then weren't allowed to talk about. And the way the history, you know, existed was basically through stories being handed down. And I have family that are still in Ukraine. And I was able to also kind of interview a cousin who was able to share his grandmother's experience, what she remembered. And so there are a lot of things like that, that I felt like, you know, talking to people who we have a cousin here in America who passed away a few years ago, but who also was able to share stories. And so I I kind of use some of my journalism tools in terms of interviewing people. I also worked with several historians who specialize in this one in particular, who is excellent, who's Ukrainian and teaches at Cambridge. And she was able to she does a lot of work on perpetrators of the famine. And so she was very helpful in terms of her research and, you know, being able to use that. So I feel like it's something that more and more people are writing about, and there are these oral histories defined. What there isn't so much are actual records. For example, in the village where my family comes from, I had my cousin go there to the local library archive place and look for anything. And there was nothing to be found about this, which is pretty incredible. But I do think that's beginning to change. So that that helped in terms of the research process. And this is kind of a craft question, but, you know, okay, you start, you go out and you start acquiring mountains of information. And how do you start thinking about synthesizing this information into fiction? 
you know, it can I I know as someone who gets really into research, it can be overwhelming and and you want to put everything in it and you're also looking for those little details that illuminate the entire world that we can no longer experience. That's right. And it is and it is very hard and I try to be very conscious of that because I feel that when historical fiction isn't done well, you feel like somebody is just like power hosing you with details that aren't necessarily always relevant. And so what I try to do is I really start with the emotional stories of the characters. And if it doesn't track back, you know, I find all sorts of great things, right? You know, you get very excited as a researcher, you find some detail, but if it doesn't give you a way to illuminate your character or to, you know, relate to your character, you have to let go of it. So there is a lot that I didn't use because it wasn't going to sort of serve those characters. And for me, fiction always has to be really character driven. If you can't create that emotional connection with the reader through a character, you're not going to create it just by giving them facts. Are you trying to know the subject and then you can kind of write about it a bit freely? Or, or I know I've talked to a lot of people who will about historical fiction and oftentimes they'll say, you know, I'll learn this information and I'll condense it to a couple things and then just trust that I I know it. It's in the it's in the the blood somehow. Because you especially in your, you know, historical passages, you're really recreating not just the sensory details of this world admirably, I have to say, but also the political landscape and the political worldviews and how these are all in conflict. I'm just curious about like what level of kind of information while you're just drafting and trying to <laughs> come up with a story people find interesting and that a kid will read for goodness sakes, you know, how, how you kind of keep that material on your fingertips. That's yeah. That, I mean, these are really tough things and I, you know, I have a couple of answers to that. I mean, on one level, like, I always remember I am not writing this as a pure historian, right? I'm not a historian. I'm a fiction writer, which means I'm also going to shape the material, you know, toward the story I want to tell. And in this case, I have a lot of background in the area. So I I actually, and, and with the Soviet Union, and this is a kind of fun fact, but I actually, uh, when I was 15 years old, I went on a what was known at that point in the Cold War as a peace exchange <laughs> to a Soviet youth camp, a very famous one in Crimea. And I spent five weeks there and I got to see kind of a, so they were still doing some of the things that are, you know, very nationalistic and propaganda and things like that. Some of this is lived experience for me, you know, and then I went back a year later and I studied in Moscow. And that was right before the end of the Soviet Union. It was actually the last three months that it was a country. Wow. And I was able to travel around then as well. And I speak Russian, basically, not it used to be a lot better than it is now. And I've been learning some Ukrainian. And I feel like some of the kind of what I was trying to bring to this book was also experience. And also my mother's story, because she grew up in East New York, Brooklyn, which is where one of the characters in the book grew up in, in a household that was both Russian and Ukrainian culturally. And in many ways, it was a culture that I think is more difficult for people today to understand. But, you know, her, her father is born in Belarus and the Russian Empire. Her mother is born in Ukraine. And so there is both a Russian and a Ukrainian sensibility. So all of these things kind of informed 
also how I wrote the book, you know, the research I felt I did was to fill in a lot of these pieces that I didn't know in terms of, you know, specifics. One of my favorite bits of historical information in the book is when we meet Mila, she has just received what she thinks is a party invitation and turns out to be a envelope that has lice in it. And I had seen this detail in a story you know, I can't remember now which historical source it was, but in one of my actual historical oral history sources, somebody had mentioned this. And I talked to a couple of historians and they're like, well, maybe that happened. Maybe that didn't. (laughs) Um, It's a little, you know, but that the idea was that people who were angry at the communists would send lice in an envelope, hoping that they would get bit and get typhus. And it seemed a little bit far-fetched, but as a fiction writer, I felt like, well, somebody had this in a historical record. Like, it's a good detail, and it actually serves my character's story, because it's that first moment where she starts to wonder, well, why do people hate me? And realizes that there's a lot there to hate. There's a lot there to be angry about, and it's sort of the beginning of her journey. So that's kind of an example of how I use a historical detail like that. And again, like the other thing with this book is because it's so personal and it's based on, you know, inspired by, I should say, family history. This exact story certainly did not happen to my family. But, you know, I'm telling a story that's also somewhat specific to my experience. And I have a very mixed background um, in terms of being everyone in my family is from this general area, but they have different mixes. I mean, where we have different religious mixes, we have different mixes in terms of our, you know, country relationships. And and there's a lot of difficult history in this area, really yeah. difficult history. I mean, especially when you talk about the bloodlands, which are those areas that are the borders of Poland, Russia, Ukraine, you know, those countries, there is just difficult history. Um, and I write with that perspective as well as somebody who wants to write about the whole experience of the place. Yeah, well, it's difficult history, and it's also confusing history. And this is something your book does wonderfully, is, you know, this area is like, my God, it's like, you know, after the Russian Empire fell, and you got, you're trying to track all the Goss and the Visigoths, and you're like, well, I don't know. It's hard to track this history because it is so confused, and because there's so many... Com- competing narratives there's folk history there's the myths you know there's the myths that are you know like you say the baba yaga stories which are trying to be stamped out by the soviets and you have the religion and so you you present history this very confusing history and for even like a grown up like me but you can you present it in a way that It's clear in its ambiguity. You know, I don't want to be ambiguous about certain parts of it. And I think like it's 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 really important to understand that the famine was man-made, that Stalin certainly wanted to kind of stamp out Ukrainian nationalism because he saw this as a threat, and that there are these incredible historical parallels with today with the way that Putin is acting. And I also feel that, you know, for a long time. The Soviet Union and the Russian Empire have created a kind of a sense that where a lot of Westerners still see the world through the lens of history that they've kind of pushed. And there's a lot of different stories there, as, as we mentioned, you know, not just from Ukrainians, but from all types of people who had their stories subsumed into the Russian Empire, into the Soviet Union. What I wanted to do with this book is just show one sto- one such story 
that had been erased. And so at the same time, I wanted to write a book in which, and I try to do this with all my books for kids, in which villains are complicated. Um, and that's really important to me, even if it's not sort of of the moment maybe to do that all the time. But I think it's it it makes for more interesting discussions. You know, there are ways in which the Soviet Union, we talk about it as a singularly bad thing, and it is in most ways, but there are ways in which it actually improved people's lives. And I think it's important to be balanced about that. For example, it educated women. Jews had somewhat more opportunities, and then that sort of became also problematic. I feel like we need to look at this as a, you know, historically and not just emotionally. So that was what I was trying to do as well. Absolutely. And I know from reading about this time um, is that there was, at least in the beginning, there was huge optimism that this could be a complete break, a glorious break from the impression of the past. And so many, uh, a ton of the intelligentsia bought in. And one thing that that you mentioned earlier is, you know, Mila having to learn that, like, what she thinks is true, you know, this is incorrect. And that's something that is so terrifying to me just as a person right now. I am in doubt often about what's true. I mean, and I see like my children, you know, my 10 year old, like every now and then she skirts around onto TikTok. And I kind of heard her repeating almost some like Russian propaganda the other day about the war in Ukraine. And, and how do you, how do you approach children characters who are trying to figure out what's true? What's their ground for you as a writer? What, what's their touchstone that you try to give them? so they can know what's moral, what's correct. What do I follow? First of all, it's very hard. And I think we need to acknowledge that because sometimes I think there's this sense that like, it's easy to do the right thing. It's easy to be a hero. It's easy to like, and that is like the vast minority of people who instantly sort of have the right moral compass. And I think, you know, I come from the position where I feel like we're all kind of flawed. <laughs> all of us have these these ways in which we are not, you know, morally perfect. But we also we need to learn to listen to others, which I think is a big a big piece. And and for Mila, when she finally listens, she has a cousin in the book, Nadia, who is a country girl, and she herself has experienced this famine. And is able to get to Kiev, where uh, Mila lives, and sort of tell her what she's experienced. And at first, Mila doesn't want to hear it. Like, she almost can't. She keeps saying the things that her dad said to her. She can't kind of, like, open herself up. And I think it's that moment when we're able to listen, you know, tamp down on our own judgment. But listen to others with curiosity and a moment of empathy and then sort of take that information in, and then you can go through the process. And this is where my journalistic side comes in of sort of trying to figure out if what you're being told, you know, makes sense, if it like squares with, with you know, multiple sources, all of these other things, um, which Mila kind of goes through that process in an unconscious way. I mean, she's not old enough to sort of think about this journalistically, but unconsciously she sort of goes and starts to see more and suddenly look more and uh, sort of approach her world with more curiosity. And I think that that is a really important piece for kids 
or for anyone, for adults as they seek to change. You know, I mean, I think we're very hot to the, we're very quick to the take and hot to the opinion and to the condemnation. But I do think that suspending that and listening is is kind of a big piece of what I felt worked for Mila. There's also a lot of shame involved in kind of realizing that you've made a mistake or that your opinion is is offensive or hurtful. You know, some of that shame often keeps people, I think, from evolving. There needs to be some forgiveness, both from themselves and others. So it's a complicated narrative in that sense, is I'm trying to do a lot with that character. But I'm also trying to tell the story of this famine. But in a way that's appropriate for kids. <laughs> and it was it that that was the challenge of the book is this is like really dark subject matter and I'm a parent so I'm also when I write for middle grade I try to do it in a way that is not going to be completely devastating <laughs> for a kid but that you know where you have harsh realities but where you're also not kind of rubbing it in their face in a way that's like upsetting. So that's that was one of the challenges of this book. We've been talking with Catherine Marsh. We've got plenty more coming up after the break. But in the meantime, be sure to check out her other brilliant books for kids, including Nowhere Boy, The Night Tourist, Jep Who Defied the Stars, and The Door by the Staircase. And please check out her site, katherinemarsh.com, for all the latest and all the links. Okay, let's get back to the program. Part two begins now. It's often very funny and laugh out loud funny and little moments. And I, and that's something I actually do want to talk to you about is like keeping the light, finding the light. And something you were talking about, I was thinking, you know, the way that you structured this book about finding whatever the truth is or whatever the ground is, you know, I was thinking to myself, could you have written this book just from Mila's point of view? And I'm thinking, maybe not, because what you're actually doing is almost like what a journalist does is encircling the subject matter, finding from everyone. And in this case, actually, this is subject matter that can really only be viewed from the lens of intergenerational family history, right? Like that's the only way we get at what might have actually happened because it echoes, right? It echoes into the future. It echoes into the past. Yeah, I was just going to interrupt you to say that this is like why history is so important and why I've always been, you know, a huge like history fan, but it's why I kind of work it into even my fantasy books have history in it. Like, you know, I, I feel like it's just so important to contextualize and the book, like this is not something I planned because I did not realize how much things would escalate between Russia and Ukraine, but it was to me, it's sort of a way to understand the way that Putin is acting now, because you really can see these parallels between the sort of politicization of food, between the use of propaganda and almost like silencing any dis and definitely silencing any dissent to that one worldview to the point that there are people and I've heard stories from people I know in Ukraine who have family in Russia and they call up and they and they say, what are you doing to us? And they're saying, well, you attacked us. And they're like, no, you, you know, they're on the, the propaganda has created such a wall there for, you know, people to not have compassion. And then obviously, we also have been hearing a lot of these stories about kids 
um, in Ukraine being subsumed into Russia, taken into Russia and culturally indoctrinated. And that was something that was definitely going on. Children have always played a huge role in propaganda in the Soviet Union and in sort of, you know, enforcing a certain vision of truth. And so I feel like this book kind of shows you all of that historically. And then you can kind of draw those draw those lines into what's happening today. So that was another piece that I felt like I didn't even totally anticipate, but sort of became yeah. relevant. Absolutely. I mean, it's crazy. We talked to, do you know the writer Ruta Sepetis? We talked to her about a, a year ago on the eve of the invasion, like a day before it happened. And we were just kind of like, oh my God, it's repeating again. And I wanted to ask you, you're doing a lot of heavy lifting with this book, with all the different storylines, one flowing into the next, the cousins, the revealed identities. And okay, that's a lot to keep straight. It just, even even if you don't have the historical stuff to, to weave in, even if it's just pure fantasy or pure whatever. Right. Matthew is my like sort of the character that in some ways is a proxy for the reader. And when I talk to young people about this book, I don't talk about it the way we're talking about it, okay? I talk about it in this way. I say Matthew's stuck home during COVID. His great-grandmother moves in. He finds a weird old picture, shows it to his grandma and her stuff, and she goes crazy, bursts out crying, and is like so upset, and he decides he's going to figure out what the heck is going on. And I challenge the young readers to read this book and try to figure out the mystery because it is a mystery. It's at its very heart a mystery before Matthew does. And it's pretty hard. I mean, you, I don't know how you know how far you've gone, but it is pretty hard to beat Matthew on it. When I had all these different threads, the historical, some bigger things I wanted to say about like where we're at, our own country, all these things, they came together for me in the mystery. And that was the sort of the spine of the story is everything had to track to this mystery is we're going to find something out about why Matthew's great grandmother is so upset that has to do with her childhood. And my job, and this is something I do as a narrative editor of nonfiction, is you always have to leave the reader asking, well, what happens next? Why does it matter? Those are the two most important questions in writing. And so as people read this, my hope is that kids will say, well, so wait a second. Okay, so now we're hearing this person's story and like, but what happened? Like what happened to Matthew's grandmother? Why is she so upset? Because something happened to one of her cousins, but what? And that simple question is what has to lead through the book. And then all the other stuff is just, that's my job to build in. But if mm -hmm. I haven't, for me, if I haven't put in that like central question, that central question is what drives the reader. You know, it's not, otherwise you have to be, have a lot of interest in this kind of stuff, which you obviously do and I do as, as scholars and people who are interested in, you know, the the Soviet Union and the, you know, countries that are now there. But but that's not, you know, the way necessarily pull in a kid. Yeah, well, and because the chapters are on the shorter side, usually the, like, I can read that, get through them in about like five to seven minutes, you know. And most of them kind of ask a question at the end or leave something hanging. And just purely from a craft point of view, like how do you kind of balance that narrative propulsion as you're drafting, as you're revising, dealing with all of these different threads? You know, one of the reasons I think it's it's very tough is because our reading, the way kids read and adults as well has changed. 
I think that there's a faster pace. If you look back at some of the books that you might have read as a kid, you realize like, and, and try to read them to your own kids. I've had this experience where they're like, oh God, this is so slow. When's something going to happen? You know? So I think we've primed kids and ourselves through the pain, even the pace of movies, obviously screen use, all these things have like made our metabolism much faster as needing action, needing something to happen. So it is a difficult and delicate balance because I do feel that sometimes we rush too much and we maybe give kids the adrenaline ride they want, but we're not really doing justice to the writing. And writing still matters an enormous amount to me. (laughs) And I mean, this is the kind of book that you read, hopefully as a kid, to kind of challenge yourself. There are other books that you read just to, yeah, (laughs) that are more, you know, dessert, right? And I wanted Mm -hmm. this to be a book where like a kid would think about it years later and still be thinking about it and still be like grappling with these same questions, you know? That's something that I do struggle with. And I struggle with it also because I'm never sure how much I'm in sync as kids themselves change. I do have kids, which helps. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I can test it out somewhat. But but I think that is one of the true challenges of writing for kids today is having to kind of worry about that. Well, and I really appreciate in your book that I think you're really staying true to that old school storytelling where you're setting the scene properly. As fast paced as the narrative is, it's also, we also have that slower form of thinking happening as you're reading, where you're setting the scene, you're introducing complex furniture to this world. And I often worry about being too fast-paced for kids. My God, they need to, we all need to slow down and enjoy that book space where we can be reflective, where we can ask ourselves questions while we're reading it. Do I believe this? Is this true? Do I like this? Does this make me think of something else, right? That kind of reflective space that we get as readers and which I hope to God kids are building for themselves. Right. No, I think that's right. And it's a balance, right? It's like we want to have a balance between, I mean, in some ways I feel like what my kids or kids do in school can be almost too micro, like it's very analytical, like passage reading. And I'm like, I'd like them to read more books as opposed to one book really closely. But on the other hand, I do agree that like, you want kids to be able to find some sort of mental rest in books and rejuvenation in a way that you wouldn't find from, you know, playing Zelda, all those Zeldas in my book, because I love, (laughs) I mean, that. That one of the things I do do in the book, which I feel also strongly about, is not being like a snob about books and saying books are the only way kids can learn stories is, you know, Matthew has this lesson from his dad where they talk about, you know, he tries to write up his great grandmother's story once he learns it and it struggles and has a really hard time. And he asks his dad, like, what do I do? I don't know how to write. And I don't think I'm a writer. And his dad is like, that doesn't mean you're not a writer, the struggle. And here's some ways to think about how to create a story. And he talks about video games and storyboardings and movies and all these different types of other medium out there. And I think that that's something that we should embrace as storytelling. But that said, I still think books and literature 
and the pace of it and the fact that you're doing it in your mind and your imagination is something special. Like I truly believe that, but I don't think we need to be so exclusive that we say can't, kids can't learn about narrative and the book, somebody described the book this way as a lesson in narrative. And I love that description because that's kind of what I wanted to do as well is to sort of like have kids think about storytelling, Mm -hmm. the book itself, and how to not be discouraged when you can't tell a story. You know, that's the other piece. Right. You have that wonderful, the chapter you were mentioning, almost like a a writing lesson. And he has this ongoing um, relationship with his dad, with with the Moleskine, and and say, his dad says, we're living through history. Write it, you know, write something down, you know, my God. And I think there's a wonderful power, right? That comes from that. Our lived experience does matter. And for kids, you know, who the entirety of the pandemic, we were basically saying to them, actually, you know, what matters is opening the bars, <laughs> not, to, not what you're going through right now. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I really think, again, that we we're still, we don't even know all the effects of this. And that's one of the things that I also felt was very interesting about looking into the Ukrainian famine is because it was suppressed for so long. It There was a lot of intergenerational mm. trauma from it. Like people didn't talk about it, but they were clearly like they might've been weird about food or something and their children didn't understand that, or they had periods of grief and they, you know, it shaped the way they parented. So there are all these intergenerational effects. And I think the same is true and will be true with this pandemic, that there are all these effects that we haven't even just We're just beginning to understand and see. And I feel like there's a very interesting New York Times Magazine piece about this. I think that's where it was recently about the pandemic and the oral archives that were created around it. And the top of the piece, it said, like, notice how you do not want to read this piece. (laughs) And I think it's very important that we're so resistant right now to reflection on the pandemic. It's like, let's just put it behind us. Let's, you know, but I don't think that's necessarily healthy. And that's kind of what Gigi does with her past. Let's put it behind us. Didn't happen. Like I'm moving on. I'm a different person. Like, you know, and and I think that can be very dangerous. So the book is also about sort of like, how do you, how do you not get destroyed by these hard things, but also face them? Your book, as light as it can be, it goes to, a, it explores some dark places. And I had the experience of trying to write about a topic that was lateral to the topic you wrote about. And I found I couldn't do it. I couldn't keep, I couldn't find the light. And I, so how did you find the light both for yourself and for the story you wanted to tell? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say that I found the light for myself by this idea of giving, giving this history more recognition in the world. The story is also about you know, we focused a lot on Mila, but we haven't focused at all on Helen, who is the cousin who grows up in East New York, Brooklyn. And Helen is somebody who in that part of the book is really about how it feels to be an immigrant too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she very much feels like she doesn't have a voice and that she is a nobody. And she decides to challenge when she hears the reporting of the New York Times reporter, Walter Durante, who infamously reported during the famine that people were hungry but not starving because he was just relying on the Soviet official narrative. Oh, I've read um, that one. <laughs> yeah. And then he just attacked all the people who, you know, there were some brave people who went in and tried to t- and talk to people in Ukraine and 
discovered they were indeed dying, and he tried to discredit them, particularly Gareth Jones, uh, the Welsh political advisor. But but my point being that Helen decides that when she hears that this famine is not going on, according to Walter Durante, but she has family members who have managed to get her letters that say it is going on and that people are dying, she sort of learns to stand up for herself and have a voice. That was another piece that was, I felt, a very hopeful piece because it's also about the people who are either the the victims or those who support the victims and about the importance of them finding a way to tell their stories. And I think that is something that is also relevant right now with Ukraine and that for a long time, Ukraine's history has been kind of subsumed into Russia's. And now there's more of an effort to make sure people understand that they have their own story, you know, that there's their history and their literature and all of these things. And so that was one thing that helped me feel hopeful is that Helen is a character who who finds her inner courage and her voice in this book. And then I would say the other thing was just this idea that you can, going back to Mila's story, that you you can discover that you're on the wrong side of history and there are ways to address that and there are ways to right that wrong. And I think that idea, and I don't want to sound religious about this at all because I have like a very mixed religious background and I'm not traditionally religious, but in a spiritual way, I do think we need some sort of path toward redemption. So I, I feel this is also hopeful in that sense is like, I tell kids, you may have someone in your life who has an opinion that's hateful or hurtful, like most of us do. And that's a really shameful thing when you realize that. How do you handle that? You know, how do you still love people who are wrong? That was the story of the Trump era, right? It's like people would just, families were breaking apart over that. And there is like a lot of just grief, I feel like national grief over that kind of split between, you know, friends and families. Is there a way to come back and to reassess your opinions and to maybe change? And that was a real question for me. Yeah, we're also divided and conquered, right? Even internally, even kids are. Exactly. So I, you know, the book gives what I feel is hopefully a, a path toward that. It's a difficult path, right? It's a really, really hard path. And it is for Mila, for sure. But I feel like it's it's something to then take with you, this story, and think about. This history, it always seems to keep coming right back around. And because you've done so much work as a political journalist, where the aim of politics is often to obscure what you're doing, so, so people don't really know what's going on. How do we, and we've been in an age where that's become more deliberate and on the surface is, let's hide, let's obscure, let's confuse. How as kids should they start to think about that I think you're kind of asking, like, how do you want kids to address these kind of problems, right? The answer to this is like, I don't think we should always approach life with answers. I think we should approach it with questions. And hopefully this book, because I don't want to ever preach to kids. Like, I don't think kids like that. I don't want to do that. I hope that this book allows them to question and to come up with interesting questions that bring them to a kind of deeper understanding of these issues. When you read the story of these three cousins, you can ask questions about, well, do you think this person should be forgiven? Like, what do you think? Do you think they did enough? Do you think that like, what did, what do they owe the people that they hurt? 
what do we kind of, you know, owe victims? Like, what can we all do? I mean, these are all questions I want kids to ask. I don't know. I don't have the answers. That's not my job. Mm. <laughs> you know, my job is to sort of just pose these questions. That's sort of what I hope to do writing books for this age. I mean, I think that that's what they need to be encouraged to do. That's all the time we have today on our show. On behalf of all of us at SCBWI, I'd like to thank Catherine for making the time to talk with us. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe to our totally free show and head over to scbwi.org if you want to learn more about the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. This episode was produced by Chelsea Chemical Hall and edited by Samantha Thomas. Thanks for listening.